Hello and welcome to this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. The Oregon Wine History Archive is located at Linfield University in McMinnville, Oregon, and is dedicated to preserving and sharing the Oregon wine story. This podcast will share these stories through oral history interviews that we've conducted throughout the industry. Please enjoy these stories. My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Dog Johan Sunby. Uh, we're at Johan Vineyards. It's March 15th, 2021. Dog, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, first question, biggest, biggest, most important question, why wine? Wow, why wine? Yeah, that is the, the biggest question, isn't it? Uh, so, uh, you know, for, for myself, I would say I'm more, uh, my story is more uh, from the perspective of, you can say that the, the wine industry found me and I wasn't seeking it out so much. Uh, you know, just, just events in my life that, that kind of led me here, that it was not a childhood dream of mine. Uh, uh, but uh, yeah, I, I, grew up, uh, I grew up in Norway uh, until I was uh, 27. And uh, back home, I was uh, studying marketing. Uh, I was playing soccer. Uh, I had a, a couple of years in, in, in the armed forces, one mandatory year for, for Norway. And then I, uh, I was down in the Middle East for a year, patrolling the Israeli-Lebanese border with the United Nations. And then after, my, uh, after I graduated from, uh, from college uh, there, uh, the Norwegian School of Management, um, this opportunity uh, presented itself for me to come over to the United States uh, through a kind of a, a, in a, in a business internship, if you will. It was a colleague of my, 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 my dad. He had done some business over here. He was in kind of mergers, acquisitions, and investments, that style. So I was sent over to Denver, Colorado, and I had a mentor. And uh, yeah, I was kind of just following my mentor's footsteps uh, around, you know, traveling around the United States. And that was really my first, during that internship, and this was in 2004, summer of 2004, that's when I was introduced to Oregon wine. I, I drank wine, I wasn't particularly interested in wine at the time, but uh, when we were kind of whining and dining in Denver, I, I got introduced with some really beautiful Oregon Pinot Noirs, which opened my eyes to it. It's like, wow, this is incredible what they're doing up there. Uh, and also, uh, my mentor's partner, if you will, had, had a vineyard, the neighboring vineyard over here. So, so through the grapevine, literally, <laughs> I was made aware that, that this piece of property was up for sale. Uh, I had no ambition at the time to, to come up here and run it. Uh, but it was more uh, an opportunity for long-term investment for my family, mm -hmm. if you will. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so yeah, my, my mentor kind of ran this, this operation for the first couple of years when I enrolled uh, in business school in Denver. So I went to the University of Denver uh, and I, I, uh, I, I, was, I studied uh, international MBA uh, with the concentration in finance of all things. So my, yeah, my career took a, a real left <laughs> turn here. Uh, so, uh, you know, uh, when I graduated, uh, my mentor had some, some personal issues, some health issues to deal with. This was too much for him to kind of take on. It's, 
it's taxing, you know, physically and emotionally to, to run a vineyard and a winery. So I was left with a choice basically to come up here and, and run it, uh, you know, with, with my, my family being my only investor uh, or, you know, sell it. So at that time, I was already enough uh, kind of emotionally invested in the industry. Once you get a little taste of it, it tends to suck you in. Uh, I've learned that. And it was hard to let it go. Uh, I was also, this was, this was the summer of 2008 where I had to make this decision. And uh, my wife Alice and I, we were getting married that summer in Iceland. And it was like, you know what, let's, let's, let's do this. You know, this is a, not what I planned to do with my life, but uh, it's an opportunity and an adventure. And yeah, uh, I've never looked back since that decision was made. So, yeah, so that's kind of like how I got here. Uh, and then I've just grown more and more in love with the industry, uh, you know, as years have gone, ups and downs, of course. It is farming, you're at the mercy of mother nature. It's only so much you can control. So I've, I've had to learn to, to control what I can control and what I can't control, just let go. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah, as far as Johan Vineyards, the, the biggest uh, change we've done here was, was change the way we farm. Mm -hmm. So uh, when I was up here early on, uh, I, I had hired Dan Rinke uh, as, as a wine grower up here, and, and he was the one that brought, brought the idea of dynamic farming to my attention. He had worked in a couple of uh, vineyards and wineries down in uh, California, so he had that knowledge. I, I very much, like the idea of organic farming for kind of long-term perspective on things. Uh, you know, I, w I was a young uh, vineyard owner <laughs> and, and therefore have always had kind of a, a 25 to 30 year mm -hmm. perspective mm -hmm. on, on every decision I make. Um, so uh, I was intrigued with, with the biodynamic part of it. I, I, I knew very little about it. I have heard of the, you know, Rudolf Steiner and, and his philosophy, and and I had some friends that I grew up with in Norway that just lived down the street from where I grew up, and they went to the Waldorf School in Norway. So that's kind of like the little bit of a connection uh, I had to 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 his philosophies and his mm -hmm. way of uh, uh, teaching farming, mm -hmm. um, and and a nice kind of full circle synchronicity in this is that my friend, my childhood friend that I, that I grew up with in, in Oscar, it's, got, it's just south of Oslo I grew up, uh, he's now our importer in Norway of all things. So he ended up in wine and he's actually importing and selling our wine. So it's a full dynamic circle here from, <laughs> from childhood to uh, adult life, uh, which I've, I've, I've noticed a lot of these different synchronicities and how they kind of become more apparent in my life. Mm -hmm. That, yeah, I don't know who wrote my life, but it was written in the stars somewhere. It's definitely what I have a, a deep sense of, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, so we made the transition for biodynamic farming in, in 2007. We got certified by Demeter in the 2010 in the vineyard, and we got the facility here certified uh, the following year. Uh, so a lot of our focus has been uh, diversity, biodiversity and in, in, in how we uh, 
tend uh, the lands here and how we farm. Uh, also diversity and great varietal in, in the surrounding areas uh, uh, of, of the rest of the farm here. And also diversity in how we distribute and sell our products, mm -hmm. you know. It's, it's kind of uh, more and more looking like a well-diversified portfolio. If I'm making anything, I learned from my my time in in business school and finance that you know we've learned some lessons through the years not to put too many eggs in one basket, not have any uh, you know de codependency, if you will, on on the other companies that we sell either too much fruit to or or too much wine. So we have a nice spread. We sell fruit now currently to about 20 different wineries uh, in the valley and up in, in Portland and, and, and have a good community, greater community connection uh, because of that. And also the way we distribute our wines, we are in the, about 12 different markets spread pretty evenly. And then we have, you know, some, some retail and wine clubs. So. So, you know, we're not completely dependent on the decisions other people make, uh, whether it's strategic or whether they, you know, uh, you know, call it, you know, it's not gonna, it's not gonna drag us down. We'd be able to replace a, a few of them. Uh, so uh, that's kind of our strength and our, our model now. And, and it's also really fun, you know, for everyone who works here, for the winemaker and the wine team to have now 16 different grape varietals to, you know, some of them we sell and I mean 10, 12 of them we make wine out of ourselves and it keeps people on their toes, it keeps them creative, thinking, uh, it makes it fun, you know, uh, and I find we have a good balance now of kind of honoring the, the founders of the the wine industry here, making some classic Pinot Noirs and some Chardonnay and, uh, and, and also, you know, pushing the envelope a little bit of more, uh, more esoteric varietals and, and methods of making wine. Um, so our philosophy is definitely that the wine is made in the vineyard uh, and, and we're kind of guiding it along in creative ways. Mm -hmm. uh, in, in the cellar, so the only additive we've ever, you know, made or, or have for our production side is, uh, is a little bit of sulfur for, for preservation and then it's all native fermentations and, and very natural process and, and having a lot of fun. We have a great team here. I've truly been blessed with great people. I knew nothing about wine. Uh, you know, coming into the industry and I've had to rely on my own employees educating me on what the heck I'm doing here. Uh, so it's been a humbling uh, journey, mm -hmm. for sure. Mm -hmm. So now I, I try to uh, support, you know, everyone in their areas of, of responsibility. You have Morgan Winemakers is responsible. She's also kind of a general manager here. So I support her and, and her work. Elise now is a vineyard manager. She took over for Dan. Uh, so support her anywhere I can there. and. And then you have Anna and the tasting room team. So, I mean, my, my, uh, my strength now, I think, is that there's nothing I haven't done. I've done everything from sitting on a tractor, from spraying, to pruning, to grafting, to, uh, to making wine, to doing punch downs, to, you know, and going and selling wine and doing market visits. So I can kind of support everyone because I, I, I know 
my business now really well uh, from ground up. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, it, I think it's important uh, f you know, for me to, to, to know what everything kind of entails. You know, you can, you can, it's easy to sit back and say, hey, we got to cut farming costs. We got to, the, 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 the workers got to need work faster because of, you know, if you're just looking at a spreadsheet. Uh, but when you're actually out there and doing the labor, you get a sense like, oh, this is hard work. You know, this, you, 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 you get a different appreciation for what people are doing around you. Mm -hmm. And I think that's really important. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's been a great, great journey and it's ongoing. Absolutely. Yeah. I've got lots more questions about that, but I want to back up for a second. Sure. Uh, you mentioned growing up in Norway. Uh, what, what, did you, what did you intend to do? What did you think you'd be doing with your life? Well, I mean, coming over to the United States in itself was just like, all right, you know, my dad presented this opportunity for me uh, and uh, I had to make a decision right then, like, okay, I'm going to leave the comfort of all my friends and family and go by myself, uh, you know, uh, the other side of the, the Atlantic uh, where I basically know no one, mm -hmm. you know, and I was 27. so. Uh, it was a big, big step for me uh, just to do that mm -hmm. and and feel comfortable <laughs> enough <laughs> to, to do it. Mm -hmm. I remember when I the, the day I, before I was leaving for my internship, I, I had some friends over and we had a little party. And after my after the party, my, my mom was crying, and I was like, Mom, it's like I'm gonna be gone for like three months. Like, what what's up? And then here I am you know, 17 years later. So, you know, the, the, the mother's intuition knew that I might not come back. Mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. You mentioned your, the various parts of your education uh, in Norway and, and at the University of Denver. Tell me about uh, the, the, the kind of the process of education for you what, you, what you took away from it. And you mentioned kind of already a little bit what you use from that in, in your work now. Yeah, I mean, I, I studied, as I said, international marketing and then here in the not international MBA in the University of Denver. So uh, I, I feel that we are a very creative business here in how we are kind of responding to the market and the market changes and also coming out with our, our own authentic products, mm -hmm. you know. And, and marketing is, is collaboration. It's pulling out creativity from, from the team around you. It's not like you can sit and dictate everything if you're going to be successful in marketing. Marketing is teamwork, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So, uh, yeah, so, so that's been a philosophy of mine. What I'm kind of like forced to, you know? And, and seeing how if, if I give employees here some creative freedom to go with responsibility that they will grow as human beings here working here and and they will you know and I think they will be happy here uh, because they can feel some ownership for it mm -hmm. you know and and also I mean and of, of course a, a, an MBA is a general business management degree and it is a business so you know having having knowledge and, and also learning a little bit about uh, cultural differences although they're not huge between Norway and the United States, but you know, Americans do business their way and it's a little bit different. So uh, also I needed to learn the language well, you know, orally and, and, and writing mm -hmm. and that definitely improved. So, uh, you know, I wouldn't say my, my education was a, was a waste 
of time and money, uh, no, I'm, I'm glad I, I did it. Mm -hmm. And it's been useful just also for, you know, for my own general oversight over mm -hmm. the business. Mm -hmm. yeah. That brings me to a, a question that we, we talk about a lot in these, um, obviously wine's a complicated business and, and, and a kind of a, a capital, uh, capital heavy investment. Tell me about um, how you kind of approached it once you decided, once you said you kind of sunk your teeth into it. How you approached making it a, 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 a workable business and a successful one? What were, you, what were the kind of keys for you to make it work? Not give up. You know, yeah, I'm not going to lie. It is, it is, you know, you've, you've heard it before. It is capital intensive and, and you, you got you to gotta be patient in, in what you, you do and you got to believe in what's being done. And no, there, there you know, several times in the, in the past, especially when we made the transition from more conventional setup to the biodynamic farming and kind of seeing how everything kind of like fell apart, you know, the canopy wasn't growing, the yields went down. I was like, oh no, on top of, of a very competitive and difficult industry to succeed in, like I'm going like really the hard way here, you know? And, and there was a lot of days with a lot of regrets and, and personal torment, uh, but you know, uh, I, I think it, it was the belief in, in, in the philosophy and, and how we approach it. And, and finally, I had to like not stay so much in my mind as just sink into my heart and like, okay, this feels right. Mm -hmm. It doesn't maybe make sense number-wise, you know, that I, all the things I just learned, I have to like, okay, let's just set that on hold and <laughs> follow our heart. And, uh, and yeah, uh, you know, I, I think it's, it's uh, going through that has, has helped me grow as a human being, you know. Uh, uh, but yeah, it was, it was hard, uh, you know, at times. But now, you know, what doesn't break you gives you some wisdom and, and makes you stronger. And now that we've, you know, we had the 2020 year just now where the yields were naturally low. We had smoke that, you know, affected the grapes and, uh, you know, and the lockdown pandemic, all of a sudden we couldn't open the doors there and sell our direct wines out. And then we ended up actually like coming through this year, uh, you know, uh, well, I would say we didn't make much money, but we didn't lose money either. So it's like, okay, now we're starting to see mm -hmm. the strength of our model. Uh, and that gives us a lot of confidence going forward uh, that if you, can, if you can break even on a disastrous, tough, difficult year, uh, you know, you're, you're going to be optimistic about the future and all your anxieties kind of going to go away a little bit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, no, uh, yeah, I mean, I, I'm sure I have some advice now to give other people who wants to start a vineyard and, and winery and farm the way we farm, because we've, we've learned through it, mm -hmm. you know, and uh, yeah, mm -hmm. just diversity, 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 and, and stick with it and believe it and don't give up, mm -hmm. yeah. So I want to kind of take the, the growth of Johan in a couple of different stages here, because obviously that what you've come to is this kind of diverse, fun, interesting biodynamic model. It took a while. Mm -hmm. uh, it didn't come out of the box that way. So let's talk about the, the, the biodynamic part first, because that was sort of the first big piece of it. When, Dan, when, you, when, you, when you hired Dan and Dan approached you with this idea, why did you decide to do it? Why, what ultimately was the decision in, in going with biodynamic versus maybe an easier organic model? 
Uh, well, there was it's something you know, it's something uh, I don't know mystical about it too. When you're not aware of it, and then you've presented it, it's it's been presented to you. Whereas kind of organic, not using herbicide, pesticide, you know, clean farming, that that's easier to understand when you come into the bringing the the the, the lunar you know cycles and and all these things that that you know, uh, it's a part of a holistic, more, more spiritual approach to, to farming. There's something a little bit m mysterious about it. And then, you know, wine is also a little bit of a mysterious, uh, you know, product in itself that you can't, we can't kind of, I don't know, be too scientific about it. And in, in, my, in my own opinion, we got to leave the mystery of it alive, mm -hmm. you know, and and biodynamic farming and holistic approach to it uh, certainly uh, does that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So tell me about the about, you, about the process you mentioned earlier, kind of initial regret as as it, as a struggle. Tell me about that process and how long it took you to transition into what you consider like a successful biodynamic system. Well, you know. Uh, for certification purposes, they, they, it's, they have a, a set kind of three-year transition, you know, period. Uh, I mean, Dan would probably agree with me and through our observation that that would probably take more like five or six years, mm -hmm. that it takes a little bit longer for, for the whole system to get used to, uh, you know, the new way of being treated, you know, basically. Uh, so if, if we, we, we transitioned in 07, and I think when we came to, you know, around 2013, uh, 12, 13 is where we saw that the canopy bounced up and everything started looking healthy. And then the yields came back and 2014 came in and then, you know, new cycle, drier, warmer years and, and good yields. And that's like, oh, there is hope, <laughs> you know? Yeah, it felt good. Uh, but yeah, I'd say from my experience, going from a, a, a more conventional way of of farming to to this approach, I would say five to six years, mm -hmm. just through our own observation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the other part of what you mentioned was the kind of the the, the variety of varietals, the, the the way you've you've planted this out beyond the kind of typical Willamette Valley varietals. So tell me about that process. What what led you to try things like like Blaufrankish and things like that as you were as you were expanding the vineyards here? Several reasons for it. You know. Uh, one reason was, uh, you know, ourselves and our, our own preference, what, we, what wines we like to drink and what wines we think would do well in our, with our soils and our microclimate here. Uh, a little bit, you know, uh, of diversifying a vineyard that was very Pinot Noir heavy that we wanted to, okay, let's, let's try some other grapes here because now we're, now we're being very reliant on, on the market for the Pinot Noir grape itself, not just wine grapes, but that particular grape. Mm -hmm. uh, and, you know, uh, and also uh, there are economical reasons for it too. We have some of these Austrian varietals that they're a little thicker skinned, they settle heavier, they can sit through some weather, you know, so when we have weather changes here and we, we get some cooler weather come in, you know, in the, in the fall, we can actually let them sit and the canopy holds up and, and whereas, you know, uh, the Pinot Noir is really thin skinned and, and delicate. Uh, so 
that uh, and also a little bit of demand in the market too with our with our winery partners that we sell fruit to that wants to you know to expand on their own portfolios and work with some unusual more unusual grapes mm -hmm. uh, so it's been a, com a combination of, of several diff different factors that has uh, made us as diverse as we are with with our 16 different grape varietals um, and it's fun you know it's a lot of grafting of course and it's a little bit of money there too that you you take away a few acres of income for a year but the following year you get that income back so it's certainly a, a more economical way to do it than than replanting which you know it's going to take you three or four years to get a good crop in uh, so it's a quicker way to do it with you know top grafting on established uh, rootstock so yeah and now you know now we have some experience with them and we're seeing some grape varietals that we can say well they they work really well on our our ancient marine sedimentary soils we get the salinity through in the whites we we get this beautiful sanguine kind of blood iron compounds in our in our red and and johan wines are becoming pretty distinct you can you can taste that they come from johan and that's what we want too we want the transparency we want our wines to, and, and grapes to be good translator of the land so you get a the really you know kind of distinct sense of place uh, and by by also fermenting uh with indigenous yeast we we're, we're having a combination of of yeast that that's driving fermentation that you can't really copy you know it's just created here with whatever you know yeast culture has been developed in the cellar and and what you pull in from the vineyard every year so uh yeah and you know some some people will say it's risky to do it that way that you have less control uh during the fermentation process uh i i'm completely ignorant when it comes to that because indigenous fermentations is all I've ever been involved with. So I was like, what is this adding yeast? Like, why would you do that? They just ferment themselves. So yeah, so, you know, sometimes it's not being schooled in certain areas can be to your benefit, you know, uh, but yeah. Don't know what you're missing if you don't know what's there, right? Exactly, yeah, yeah. Ignorance is a bliss sometimes, yeah. You mentioned the site and how the, it has kind of a unique uniqueness to it that you're starting to, to, to be able to notice in the wines. Tell me about this site and about your process of getting to know it once, once you got here. What's, what's unique about it? How do you define the terroir here? And, and how, did you, how long did it take you to get familiar with it? Yeah, uh, well, let's start with, let's start with the site and, and the terroir, if you will. What, it, what, it, what is the signature of, of our place in this area? Uh, you know, there is a lot of uh, marine influence here, not just from, from the, the ancient, you know, marine cemetery uplift, you know, uh, but also from the Van Duser corridor here, the gap in the coastal range that pulled maritime cool air in, in, in through that corridor in the afternoon creates this uh, heat sink. You know, when, when the valley warms up in the summer, we have 90 degrees here in the afternoon, the winds pick up a lot and pull that air in and you can smell the ocean here. You can smell the saltiness, you know, uh, and, and vines are incredible because they absorb all these phenolics in its own environment from the soils and also ambient in the, in, in the air. 
So I say that's the strongest uh, component, mm -hmm. uh, signature, if you will, of our wines. This, this salinity, this kind of ocean feel you get from here. And then we also, uh, we are in an area here where, where, you know, the Missoula flood back in the day, you know, made its pass through. So 50,000 years ago, the, the glacier started breaking up in Montana and these great flood events uh, happened and, and kind of came down through the gorge and down through the whole valley here, scoured off the, the, the deeper topsoils that were on these rolling hills, deposited that on the valley floor and kind of just left behind whatever it had dragged down all the way from Montana. So it's a lot of kind of rocks and minerals uh, that are not really native to the area that's been brought down here in this kind of younger decomposed, you know, created topsoil, which is kind of shallow, which is kind of what you want to create this needed stress. But also we're noticing when, when, the, when the vines are maturing a little bit and the tap roots get deeper down in that clay marine cemetery soil that, you know, we, 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 we cut out any form of irrigation. Once it's down there, the, the, it finds its own moisture. So even through these years, 14th or 18th, warm, dry cycle here, we didn't have to put one drop of water uh, on the vineyard. Uh, and yeah, so the more they mature, uh, even, the even more distinct sense of place you will get from this maritime influence. Um, yeah. And how long did it take you to, to become familiar with the site? To feel comfortable with it? Yeah, I mean, that's kind of a difficult question to answer. Uh, I, I moved up here, I'd say the end of 07. And well, I'd say, uh, you know, maybe, maybe four or five years, you know, till I felt like, okay, uh, I, I can kind of grasp <laughs> at least what's going on here. I can try to understand the site, uh, you know, its strengths and weaknesses and opportunities and threats and all that. <laughs> um, but yeah, it probably took me a little while to get used to and also to get used to the quiet out here. Yeah, living out here all isolated with your own thoughts and you know, whoo, yeah, city slicker like me, it's, uh, it takes a little while to get used to that. I think it's easier for my wife. She, uh, she grew up and uh, both her parents were professors at, at the University uh, of Colorado. So she, she grew up just outside Boulder in this little goat farm that they were running. So she was like, you know, like used to it. So for her, it's like, oh yeah, yeah. It's like, feels at home. And for me, it's like, it's quiet out here. Yeah. <laughs> but so, so that too, and I think that's a part of it, just getting used to the place getting uh, you know, at peace with it, the quiet and the isolation. Mm -hmm. And then, then you end up in a place like now where I just see the city, I'm like, oh, that's loud. <laughs> like, how can people live there? So much stress and movement, and man, they gotta get out of nature. You know, so yeah, it's funny how that goes, how, how much the environment around us impacts us. Yeah, it's amazing. Yeah, we're like little, little, little vines ourselves, yeah. <laughs> You mentioned earlier you you kind of see your role as, as supporting and, and you have and you having done everything here a little bit at least in day to day day to day week to week year to year work now how do you kind of define what you do what 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 do you do how is your year planned out how does your year scheduled and what do you what roles do you fill around here 
Well, it's clearly perfectly tailored for, <laughs> for me. <laughs> you know, uh, it's, it's very diverse mm -hmm. uh, at this point. You know, uh, like I mentioned, I've kind of done everything here, and, and including, you know, the management and, and the budgeting and, uh, and that business side of it. Mm -hmm. uh, and I've kind of handed that over to Morgan now. Uh, and, and now I'm f more floating around supporting everyone. Uh, and I can, I can answer questions, I can step in, you know, if someone is, gets sick or is gone, you know, I can step in and do it. But yeah, uh, uh, I, I love my morning routines now. I get up in the morning early and I go and let out the chickens and the ducks and I feed them and I see the sunrise and I get this you know, get my steps in <laughs> and get this beautiful, you know, soft start to the morning, you know, give my thanks, you know, for, for everything uh, I've been granted in life. Uh, and then that kind of like just mentally sets me for the day. Uh, and then I, yeah, then I do a little bit. I can run errands. Uh, I can help out on the crush pad here, as you see now mm -hmm. with hand bottling of pet nut. I can go out and, and do some, you know, counts uh, of, uh, of vines or whatever needs to be done in the vineyard. Uh, I can be flexible right now with, with home, with having two children. Now, my wife and I, we've got two children. There are two girls, they're eight and 10. So I can be flexible and helping out there too. You know, my, my wife is a immigration attorney. She works for a, a law firm in, in Salem. And they've been really flexible and helpful as well. So, yeah, I, I'm blessed in that there's great diversity in my day-to-day my -day tasks mm -hmm. here. Uh, and I, I love playing that role of supporting everyone now and just being around as, and, you know, inspiration, encouragement, um, and then seeing people grow into their own roles. You know, in the beginning I was owner and CEO and it's like I had, I can't play, you know, both good cop and bad cop and manager, you know, it's like, eh, this is, this is not working out, you know, but giving people then more, more personal responsibility that comes with their creative freedom, if you will, you have to balance that out. Uh, then, then I feel like that's working really well. Mm -hmm. And I have, a, like I said, I have a great team now uh, and uh, there's great harmony among, among the team, which is very important. Mm -hmm. Is there a favorite role that you play? Is there something you, you look forward to most, whether it's working in uh, bottling or in the vineyard or selling, or is, is there something you, you enjoy the most? Yeah, harvest. Yeah, by far. <laughs> I mean, everything we do here the whole year, I mean, it, it leads up to this one shot of getting everything right. You know, we have all this, stress with all the fruits there, the fruit's vulnerable when, the, when you come in here, the wine's vulnerable as long as it's in barrel. And then, you know, this whole process from just pruning to having it in bottle and, and, and harvest is where it all kind of happens at once. So it's definitely the most labor intense uh, time of the year. It's where I work long days as well, you know, we all do, uh, but it's something so gratifying about it. To, to bring that fruit in and to smell it. And I love, I love my role and, and since I live on the property here now, we built a house on the property here in 09, I can do the night punch downs, you know, when the crew is all worn out and tired, 
send them home. They can get some much needed sleep. And I, <laughs> I have the cellar for myself and I got like 30 fermenters and I'm sitting there and just, you know, gently pushing down the fruit and smelling them and taking my time. And it's just a magical moment. Yeah. I love that. I can see that, that being pretty, a pretty cool way to end your day. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Yeah. Um, you mentioned the, the team a couple of times, obviously Morgan and Dan before her and, and, the, and the rest of the, the team here. Um, tell me about building that team. What, what, what have you looked for in people you've hired and, and then what has your kind of management style been? You mentioned giving people responsibility. Is that something you always wanted to do or is that something you kind of grew into? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, been, a, it's been an evolution uh, in a sense in how, how the different uh, positions here have been kind of filled and formed, you know. In the beginning, it was very much forming the, the position based on the strength of, of the employee. And now we're kind of like, okay, we need a little bit more defined than that. That's too much, you know. And, and, and the flip side of that is like, if you have just this complete recipe of what a position should be, like bullet points, that's too structured again. So we need to, to find a balance between being flexible to change things around according to the strength that, that the employees bring to the table, uh, but also having each area of responsibility and, and kind of daily tasks defined enough mm -hmm. that people kind of know what they're supposed to do here. Mm -hmm. So it's very much been an evolution. There was not some set template that I worked from when it comes to that. And now that, that the company is like maturing a little bit, we have, you know, with me, it's eight people working here now. Plus, you know, we're, we're, we're hiring uh, vineyard uh, management companies and their crews to do large work in, in the vineyard. But it, we're a small team here still, but we're enough now that we can define the, the roles a little bit. And I think people will, uh, also be comfortable with that and knowing what their area of responsibility is. This is my little domain that I get to, you know, no one's going to boss me around in, in these tasks, you know, give people that freedom mm -hmm. and, and also provide enough oversight, mm -hmm. you know, and, and there is a lot of overlap with these positions we have here. We all kind of have to know what other people are doing, what their tasks are, so we can step in for, for each other. If, you know, we've, there's a baby boom going right now, you know, the winemaker and Morgan had a baby and now Elise is gonna have the baby and now we're like, all right, so we need to kind of like, uh, we can't just hire new people to replace them, so we need to kind of overlap that a little bit. So everyone needs to be able to be involved in everyone's tasks to a certain extent to give us that flexibility. Mm -hmm. And what are you looking for? What, what do you look for in employees? What are the biggest, the biggest things you're looking for when hiring? Uh, I, I personally, I like uh, honesty and also passion. You know, if, if you find a, an employee who, who is generally honest and authentic as well as having a passion for, you know, not only wine, but also our approach to it. People are, there are kind of aligned with our philosophy. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, that would be, mm -hmm. you know, 
the biggest traits. And of course, they got to be capable and, 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 and have the skills to perform their, you know, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. their assigned uh, tasks. So, uh, so yeah, uh, it's, it's always uh, interesting, you know, we, we don't have a whole lot of turnover here. I mean, some, uh, but the whole interview process too, is not me sitting and hiring people and introducing the new employee to the team. No, we have Katie and Morgan and, and it, it's, it's a team, more of a team interview that we all are involved with because, you know, the, the synergies and how people work together is really important. So if you bring them in, let them do, you know, part of the interview, you are more likely to, to prevent future friction from happening because now they have to take ownership and also the hiring process, you know? <laughs> Giving people ownership, then, then yeah, then they gotta uh, live up to that responsibility. In a sense. You talked earlier about uh, a crowded wine marketplace. It's, of course, it's only gotten more crowded since, since you started selling wine. Tell me about the process of selling your wines and, and the kind of, you mentioned kind of a diverse approach to that. So tell us how you, how you have sold your wine successfully and what your kind of strategy philosophy is behind that. Yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, from the beginning here, you know, we, we, we started off as a grower of grapes and just selling pretty much all the fruit back in, you know, 05. Johan was founded in January 05, where my family invested in the property. Uh, that 05 vintage, we had, you know, 250 cases of Pinot Noir made in the, in the neighbor's winery. And the following years, we made, you know, six, 700 cases up at Coelho's winery in Amity before we uh, made the investments here and, and had our own commercial winery on site. Uh, so it was kind of finding homes for, for, for these wines and bringing it up to a, a almost like an economical level that would be sustainable, you know. Uh, and, and, you know, selling wine is hard, you know. Uh, in the beginning, it was a lot of cold calling and trying and, and, uh, and failing. Uh, yeah, and, and certainly there's, there's been times where we racked up inventory, uh, which is very expensive to have all that capital tied up in inventory. Uh, but we've, it, it is a relationship-driven industry. Mm -hmm. So the more relationships you get, uh, the better match you will find as far as distribution, uh, and, and partner wineries and all that. Mm -hmm. so, uh, so it's been equally much just taking recommendations from our peers, you know, saying, hey, I think this distributor will be a good match for you guys because they, they have a portfolio with a bunch of biodynamic wines and they know how to sell you guys wine. Like, okay, thank you for that. And yeah, relying a little bit of of the industry to kind of help us out and and we're we're will then be willing to help other people out starting in the industry here um it's been very actually very friendly uh i would say i i don't notice a lot of that competitiveness and that jealousy and like yeah, I'm, i need to step on you to you know mm -hmm. exalt myself but actually a lot of collaboration uh among our peers and that's kind of how we have found the distribution channels we have now to a great extent uh, is by word of mouth uh, and finding distributors who understand our wines, 
who appreciate the way we do it and also know how to sell them. Mm -hmm. um, and of course, as the company matures and the name gets out there, as you're building your, your brand name, you know, then people start contacting you too and it becomes a little bit easier. Mm -hmm. uh, but in the beginning, it's like, yeah, all right, let's, let's do this. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, I don't know. I, we didn't work on a set template there either. We we're kind of like, all right, let's go sell one bottle at a time and, and see how it goes. Mm -hmm. uh, and now we are getting to a point where we, we have, you know, half our wines allocated, you know, they have homes before we bottle them even. Mm -hmm. So we're getting to a better, more, more comfortable position that there too. And, you know, we, we, we try to uh, provide a product that we feel is of high quality certainly lots of love gone into crafting it and also at at fair prices competitive but fair prices mm -hmm. too uh, again if if you if you have this surge of demand you know you become this new great thing in the valley it's easy to to jump on and take advantage of that like okay let's just crank up prices on everything Again, I see that as a shorter term uh, strategy and that, that you can rake in some short term profits that way. But again, with the longer perspective on this, you're just like, now we, we got to grow slow and steady also with the pricing and everything. And, uh, and we don't want to step on anyone's toes and we don't want to come across as being unfair, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. because it is a, a, a small industry and, and you know, yeah, your reputation is going to precede you. So, yeah. How have you seen the, the demand for both biodynamic grapes and for biodynamic wines change since you started farming biodynamically? Uh, well, I, I think there's an increased awareness of it, uh, for sure. Uh, in the beginning, no one had that we we're trying to sell wine to hadn't heard of biodynamic, you know, the biodynamic approach and now people are seeking us out because of it. Mm -hmm. uh, I've also heard or seen that, that there are more vineyards that are transitioning to that approach. Uh, even some bigger companies that are making some, some larger commitment to this type of agriculture, which is great, you know, and we want to encourage that, of course. Uh, uh, yeah, I mean, of course, I want everyone to farm like we do. Wouldn't that be great? <laughs> but. Uh, uh, yeah, so I think it's it's a it, it's growing awareness is a good thing for us. Uh, more more demand for transparency is a good thing for us. We don't have anything to hide, you know. We we don't have a a secret formula of additives we put on our wine. So full label transparency would would benefit us. Uh, and so I think we're. We're set up well for, for the future and what, what the market will demand mm -hmm. from us as a producer, uh, transparency, uh, and then also a focus on, on, I don't know, respectful stewardship of, of the land again. So you have a pretty unique wine club with, with your farm share. Tell me about the, how that came about and how that has worked for you so far. 
Uh, well, it, it's something that we've thought about, you know, and now we can get into, you know, this last year with the, the COVID happening and, and the lockdowns and all this and, and, and what we've kind of been forced, the changes we've been forced to making. Uh, so it was a perfect opportunity for us last summer to start this program. We had a vegetable garden there that, you know, some years were were planted and some years were neglected. It's like, yeah, it's not going to be top priority. And uh, yeah, so at least really took on that project last year and we, we planted it out and we started this CSA uh, program. And I mean, you can just imagine the demand for that was, was high. People were sitting locked up in their apartments and homes and then, yeah, here's this offer. I, we can come drive to your door with a box of organic produce to go with your six pack or case of wine. <laughs> so yeah, so it was very successful and, and we kind of just had to, to limit what we could offer based on, on, on our own supply of it. So that's something that we're going to continue with and expand a little bit on it as well. You know, first year, uh, you, you learn a little bit uh, about everything, you know, how the distribution of that logistics going to work, how it's kind of economically going to pan out to do it as well. So we're learning from that and we're, we're tweaking it a little bit for this year and then, and then expanding on it. Uh, um, so, yeah, that's been great. Tell me about your, uh, thinking back, uh, your kind of initial impressions of, of the Oregon wine industry. What, what, were you, what, what were the first impressions you had of it and, and how have those impressions changed from, from then to now? Well, I, I think it has, it has, I mean, changed somewhat, but also been pretty consistent in my impression early on, you know, coming being this blue-eyed guy from Norway coming here fully, completely ignorant of everything, I feel like Oregonians are really warm and welcoming people, uh, very helpful. Uh, like I said, there, you know, there's a lot of good collaboration among, among our colleagues here. And, and there's a lot of passion too, you know? And, and I, I, I see this passion and I kind of love that people in the industry really, really love what they're doing, mm -hmm. you know, and that's across the board. But of course, with this passion, you know, uh, emotions can run high as well, you know, so, you know, that's where you got to find the balance. But, uh, but I'm seeing a lot of passion mm -hmm. uh, in the Oregon wine industry and, and Oregonians are just incredibly loyal to, to, to Oregonian agriculture and wine and products in general. So we, it's amazing how much Oregon wine is being sold in Oregon. It just baffles me. Uh, yeah, how, how, lo how loyal people are uh, to, to the local producers. Mm -hmm. uh, but also it's, it's a small, it's a young industry. It's a growing industry. There's lots of opportunity for the Oregon wine industry as a whole to, to do a better job marketing itself and finding its own identity you know in the in the greater wine marketplace mm -hmm. um, yeah and you know and then of course we kind of like have to agree a little bit of what is that identity going to be what is it currently and who decides you know it's like the process in creating an, an AVA here in our area 
So Dan and I, we started that by inviting our, our neighbors here in 2010, I believe, and saying, okay, we're Willamette Valley ABA, we don't have a sub-ABA, we, we feel like we're in a very distinct area, uh, and, and how, do we, how do we go about you know, promoting that, mm -hmm. if you will? And yeah, so a lot of neighboring politics, of course, with everyone having their own vision of what it should be, be like, and then uh, kind of finding finding common ground and middle ground and uh, and that's kind of how things have to be you know everyone voices their own opinions and, and how they see it and then bring it to the table and then collectively we gotta you know make decisions together mm -hmm. uh, and yeah we're, we're happy when when that ABA the Van Duzer Corridor ABA went through and now we don't have to say oh we are we are in the area just west of the <laughs> hills or just you know south of the, the Dundee and McMinnville. No, we're actually, we're in the uh, Van Duzer Corridor ABA, so now we, we find even a more distinct sense of place here. Yeah, and uh, I, certainly, I certainly have my opinions on, on what our areas bring and, and what makes, let's put Pinot Noir as an example, distinct here from the other sub-AVAs. Mm -hmm. right? They are our, our fruit gets really kind of almost dark, you know, good color, darker color, but also very red fruited, and 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 you the saltiness again from the soils here, uh, they, they make our, our wines uh, distinct in its own right. And I, I think our wines are beautiful food wines. Mm -hmm. We all, we sell a lot of our wines through restaurants mm -hmm. and and chefs tend to love working with them because they get good acidity, good structure, uh, pairs well with food, so, mm -hmm. yeah. Mm -hmm. What about as you, you look ahead for the Oregon wine industry? What's, what's coming in the next five or 10 years that you're excited about or, or concerned about, or what do you kind of hope is happening next? <clears throat> uh, you know, I, I, I hope we can continue to work together, you know, and actually give ourselves room <laughs> space for our differences too, you know, that we don't have to point fingers and telling people how we should do it, but rather give each other room to be creative and, and kind of naturally, authentically finding our own identity. Uh, and I think it's important for young people coming into the industry to respect what's already been done here, what's been laid out in front of us. So, so kind of showing the respect of the founders of the industry and what they've built so, so we don't step on any toes that way. Mm -hmm. and, and at the same time, maybe the more established, you know, founding wineries can be open to kind of some, some new young impulse and creativity that we can find that balance so it doesn't have to be uh, all friction, you know, but actually find some common ground there that, you know, know this, this youthfulness, this, this, this progress, this creativity, this willingness to experiment and going out there, you know, give room for that mm -hmm. and then also maintain a, a certain level of respect and integrity of, of what's been done here. I think that's going to be really important to find that balance uh, moving forward. 
You talked earlier about 2020 and the kind of the, the multiple challenges it presented. So I want to start with, with COVID and, and what it, how it affected kind of your, your wine life and how you sort of affect the industry in general and what you, what you see coming out of it for yourself and for the industry, for Johan and for the industry. Yeah, I'm going to speak for, for myself and for us because I, I've been, I, I'm told you I already live very isolated here <laughs> and even more so after this lockdown. So what other people have done through this, I have very little knowledge of. Uh, so of course for us initially it was a little bit of shock, you know, all of a sudden we couldn't have people come here, visit us, we are relying on some direct to consumer sales, you know, uh, and, and, and wine club and all that. So that, that was tough. Also scary in that, wow, we sell a lot of warm wines to restaurants, especially here on the West Coast. And, and now the whole restaurant industry is just shut down, you know, will the retailers or, you know, other avenues be able to compensate for this? Uh, you know, um, yeah, so that was a little scary and I'm glad I've entered this year with a little bit of experience, you know, uh, on my back and that I can say, okay, I can't control this. Why worry about it? Because I feel like this was one of those years where it was easy to worry a lot, you know. I certainly believe in the law of attraction. It's like what you fear and what you worry about, you also attract and that doesn't help you. So you have to let it go. Just control what you can, do the changes that's, uh, that's uh, doable mm -hmm. you know, for you. So we did, you know. Uh, we, uh, we, we have just kind of revamped and, and built our, our, wine, uh, our website. So we were lucky enough that once the shutdown went, we saw an, a surge in online orders. So that compensated some. We saw that uh, retail sales went a little bit up as the, as the restaurant market kind of died. Uh, and, and that helped a little bit that. And then we were reliant on some PPP, you know, money as well to get us through the year cash flow wise. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, when we then slowly started opening up again last spring, early summer, we did uh, appointments only. We, we had to serve outside, of course. So we had to implement that system. And that's something we've been thinking about doing previous years, but we haven't really pulled the trigger on. And now like, all right, now we have to do it. And we're a small little tasting room here and we're right on the winery facility. And, and it can get a little crowded here when we just have walk-ins in the summer and the weekends and we have 60 people here and it becomes a little chaotic and we can't control that. So now we have appointments and then we, we have a little bit more control how to staff it, how to prepare, especially for the weekends in the summer. And it creates a little bit more of an intimate experience for the consumer too. Now they come and sit down. We actually come to their table. We serve to them. We introduce ourselves. We, we can educate them more. Uh, and because of that, we've also seen an increase in, in uh, wine club signups, mm -hmm. you know, which helps. So, yeah, uh, we were in, in, a, in a blessed situation where, where we, were able, we had the sales channels kind of established so we could move things around, you know, uh, and it worked out for us. Mm -hmm. uh, but of course, I, I can't imagine how early startups, you know, if this was, if this happened to me, you know, back in 
2010 or something, I'd be, yeah, tearing my hair out. I don't know. It, you know, so I have a lot of sympathy for people who have been hit hard mm -hmm. uh, with this pandemic and just count my blessings and, and that we were kind of set in a place where we were able to uh, adapt to it, if you will. So, yeah, it's been pros and cons through it. But uh, I think our model and, and being creative and, and adaptable uh, really helped us mm -hmm. last year. Mm -hmm. Of course, the other part of last year, like you mentioned earlier, was was harvest already going to be a, a small fruit set from uh, all along, and then uh, the smoke that hit us in September. So, tell us about handling that and, and what kind of how you handled that that crisis. Yeah, I relied on Morgan. <laughs> I was like, "All right, Morgan, like we got to pick this fruit and we got to make wine out of it. We, you know, like what do we do?" And and you know, we talked about it, of course, and. And she was really adamant about how to kind of keep everything separate. You know, we brought fruit in, we did a lot of kind of early pressing, uh, you know, separated uh, just what we siphoned, what was light press and what was hard pressed. Uh, so, when, you know, down the road, we would have a little bit more flexibility in, in blending. We certainly did uh, make a lot less uh, red wine than we uh, had planned on. And we made more pet nats and rosés and other alternative, you know, wines uh, as well. Uh, but again, now we have also really diversified uh, portfolio of wines. I mean, you see behind me here, we have some, I don't know, 16, 17 different SKUs and, and with distinct different vinification techniques to, to craft them. So we've created demands for our, our pet gnats and, and for, for certain other wines we have so we could boost those programs and, you know, and catch up on some inventory of still wine uh, to kind of like manage this. Mm -hmm. And what was incredible was that we ended up processing the exact same tonnage in 2020 as 2019 by just shuffling things around, which was incredible. Yeah, I'm still baffled that we got through 2020 the way we did. Mm -hmm. It was amazing. Uh, uh, but yeah, we learned a lot from it, of course. And then, you know, we just hope it's going to be at least 10 or 20 years till we get another, you know, smoke event like that. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, one thing is, is the impact that smoke has on the grapes and, and the wine when, when kind of the smoke gets settled in a valley like this uh, and, and, and what you can do to alleviate it. We have very few tools the way we craft wines mm -hmm. to kind of e extract that out of it. But, uh, but you, this, uh, this, this is my point. What, what, what we also got to keep in mind is that when this smoke event happened, you know, the sky, we all saw the red skies, the dramatic, we have beautiful pictures from it, uh, and, but it darkened us for 10 days, which means that sunlight didn't get through, which means there was no photosynthesis, there was no ripening. So for 10 days, instead of having 90 degree weather, you know, and brilliant sunshine, we had 10 days of 68 and dark, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. So 
the whole harvest just got pushed back a couple of weeks that we were we were picking fruit here like well into November because of that and yeah it's yeah it was crazy but I don't know we got through it yeah and the thing is there's some wines from 2020 that I'm super excited about mm -hmm. this pet net we're hand bottling out in crush pad right now a Pinot Noir, it's beautiful. And that was just, we, we picked it, we pressed it really fast off the skins. Uh, and it's, I can't detect any smoke in it. And it's beautiful and fruity. And then we might have a couple of skews that we're gonna come out with that we're not gonna hide, you know, what's what's in it and what's impacted. So we're gonna make, you know, probably have a couple of barbecue wines to, to <laughs> offer, you know? And that's how it goes, you know? And, uh, yeah. So as you, you, you talked about the evolution of Johan to this point, and obviously all, all the changes you made and kind of where you're at now, and feeling like you've matured uh, a bit as, as a company, what, what's next? What do you see as you look ahead for the, for the next five or 10 years for both yourself and your role, and also for Johan and its evolution? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, we, we're gonna continue to increase our wine production a little bit. Uh, we are going to do a little bit more grafting of varietals that we now have grown for a while and feel there's a real demand for and, and that makes sense and make beautiful wines and also economically works out. So some of these smaller one acre blocks, we're going to just increase of that to, to boost uh, our wine program in certain SKUs. Mm -hmm. um, and also, uh, we're going to put more emphasis on direct-to-consumer of, of actually hosting people out here. So, uh, you know, having a, a better setup for, for hospitality, uh, move it from here into another part of the, the property with great views and expand on it a little bit so we can, we can accommodate this this traffic and this this draw that we've now created now we're becoming a bottleneck now sometimes we have too many people and 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 that's a good problem to have you know uh, so uh, we incorporate now we've incorporated a lot of like animals we have chickens now that grace through the vineyards we have ducks we're going to have some sheep come in and and they're going to be gracing through the vineyard to help with, with our biodynamic program that way and also make it make this area really family friendly for people to come out and have picnics and sit at the picnic table, have little walk trails, have some animals, nature, vineyards, you know, just increase that experience mm -hmm. of coming out to Johan. Mm -hmm. uh, th there's, there's great opportunity for us in that area. And I, I you know, and I, I love kind of the balance about making about one from from 50 percent of what we grow and selling 50 percent for for cash flow reasons and also for for this interconnectedness with the greater community that you know that we we have uh you know uh, great friends in in the industry and we we want to support them with fruit that kind of built their brands up also on our fruit uh, and um yeah go from there do you have a do you have a size in mind either for like planted acres or for wine production? Or are you just gonna, you mentioned growth? Do you have a, a goal in mind, or is it growth as you can? 
Well, uh, not, not short term, at least, uh, down the road, possibly. Uh, right now, we, we had uh, three blocks here that we leased out to our neighbor over a period, and then we've just gone through the, the process of buying those blocks back. So, uh, so, so the acreage we farm here has incrementally increased over the last four years, where we took on, we farmed 63 acres, we took on another 24, we're up to 87, we need to find homes for the fruit and the wine. So we've really grown that, uh, you know, a lot. So I think uh, th there won't be any major plantings here, possibly, you know, short term, uh, but We'd have, we're going to have to expand on the facility here some way, somehow, and also uh, uh, find ways to, to, to put some infrastructure for some hospitality, you know, maybe do a few more events out here, maybe some weddings, and just have this as a, a great place to come out on Saturday or Sunday afternoon and bring your family and, yeah, come, at, come here all stressed out and leave all, you know, with a zen, yeah. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah. Something you mentioned earlier was uh, was kind of having lived through a lot, gone through a lot of, of ups and downs and some struggles and having some advice. So tell me if someone were to come to you for advice, um, what would your advice be to someone getting into the industry or, or someone who maybe wanted to do kind of what you've done here? Uh, commit to what you're, you know, really try to commit to what you're doing uh, don't give up um, and and uh, be, be ready for reality <laughs> you know like it's not all romance in running a vineyard and a winery it's hard work and it's agriculture it's farming so mentally prepare yourself that you know the first five to ten years is going to be a trial, but if you get through that, you know you can you can establish yourself and you can have a wonderful career in life in in the wine industry. But uh, you know that's finding that balance, but you know believing that oh I just want to follow my dream and it's going to be so great. And then first sign of adversity you fall apart and you run away. But now you know it's going to take all that you have to succeed in this industry. It's gonna take a, a full commitment. Mm -hmm. um, but then uh, do it humbly. Respect what's done. Reach out and ask for help and direction. Uh, you know, put your pride aside uh, and, and, and you know, focus long-term on being proud of what you've accomplished once, once you're there. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I like that, that's really good. All the questions that I have for you today. Is there anything I didn't ask that I should have? Is there anything we didn't cover here today that we should have covered? Uh, no, I think uh, I think we've covered covered a lot today. <laughs> I yeah, think so too. I, appreci I appreciate the opportunity. Excellent. Thank you. We really appreciate you having us here and telling us your story and, and all your interesting answers and perspectives. And we'll let you off the hook. Okay. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this edition of the Oregon Wine History Archive podcast. And thank you to all the supporters, partners, donors, and interviewees who have made our project a success. Be sure to check out our website at OregonWineHistoryArchive.org for more interviews, plus photographs, wine labels, and more. And stay tuned for more interviews as we tell the story of Oregon wine.
The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.